This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell, and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. My next guest is a pillar of the literary universe. If you were to go to any literary event, bookshop, publishers and say the name Nikesh Shukla, everybody's face would light up. He writes, he reads, he writes about what he reads, he talks, he teaches, he curates, he edits and now he dads. Nikesh Shukla has been championing writing in all of its forms for many years. He lives and breathes it. Nikesh writes beautifully. His voice is witty, smart, funny and fun, empathetic and genuine. In 2016, Nikesh edited The Good Immigrant, an anthology collecting reflections on race, immigration and otherness. And after the death of his mother, Nikesh began to continue this memoir account, non-fiction, letter-style poetic pour from the gut. His writing strikes chords, wets eyes and bleeds hearts. His book Brown Baby is just about that, parenthood and love. When you're trying to be a parent yourself but so badly need and miss your own, when you feel like your own parent Parenting needs parenting. It's daunting, it's painful, it's scary, it's overwhelming, it's hard. And it is so refreshing, relieving and powerful for a partner to shine the light on what it's truly like in those dark, lonely, early days of raising a small person. When everything just feels too loud and too bright. And not just for the child, but for the adult too. You find yourself just wanting to be swaddled in a cot yourself, be cradled by the heartbeat of somebody that loves you. Nikesh taps into the drawbridge of life so eloquently, that gap between child and parent. The birth of them is the death of you. It is my pleasure to introduce my friend, Nikesh Shukla. Hi Nikesh, are you doing good? I'm doing okay. <laughs> We're recording this when we are recording this, and it's coming out when it's coming out. And I don't know how I'll be on the day that it comes out. But currently, <laughs> I'm definitely mainlining CBD and uh, coffee, which I think are probably both uh, counteracting each other and just flattening me into just this constant state of numbness and paranoia. How are you? <laughs> I'm actually good. I, I mean, I've been saying, you know, through my work, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like, the climate when your book Brown Baby comes out. But um, obviously having What Have I Done come out in the middle of this pandemic. And at first I was like, we were meant to be at the Palladium. We were meant to be doing this. And actually I was like, I do not need to be at a service station on my own on a book tour somewhere listening to many people talk about their experiences with heavy, heavy stuff. And even though I really want to have those conversations, I'm finding actually that 
having them remotely is quite safe because you're in your bedroom or your living room and your family are nearby and you can go to the cupboard and get the crisps and feel safe. And actually, that's probably the best place for me to be. So lockdown, in a way, with everything that happened has been quite good because what makes me, I find, keep me well is being near Jet and being near Hugo. Yeah, it's funny because in 2016 and 2017 when The Good Immigrant came out and I had a toddler and a newborn and I was basically going around the country talking about racism for a living, it was horrible. Like, I would come back just feeling flat all of the time, just feeling like my insides had been punched away because, you know, when you're talking publicly about race issues there'll always be someone who will overshare a really horrible story of their own experience with you and then there will always be someone who then denies that what either of you are talking about constitutes racism and Mm. the erasure and the reinforcement just battle it out in your head and I just I spent those two years like utterly depressed it was horrible I'm not surprised I can't obviously can't imagine what it'd be like to tour this but for you but I can I think I can empathize Uh, I don't know if that's (laughs) yeah I think (laughs) you definitely can I've read Brown Baby twice and um I feel like I started reading again as a person a human since my illness only really since lockdown my brain has fused back where I want to I'm keen to hear these stories again and the second time I read this I was like oh my God, this has really clicked with me now. Maybe I've just completely missed it, but I don't know if there's another book that has accurately logged that experience of being a new parent from a dad's perspective so accurately. It is just so refreshing. I feel like new parents in general should read it, but family members of general, and that's just why I want to say thank you from the beginning for doing this because... It's just going to be so refreshing and relieving. Did you know you were doing that? Did you know that you were writing this for dads all over, basically, and mums? But No, I didn't. It's so funny. In 2018, I spent six months doing an Observer column about being a new parent and talking about finding small pockets of joy in all of the bleakness that was happening then. I mean, what if 2018, <laughs> what was then going to happen in 2020? <laughs> um, and after the column ended, I was approached by this amazing editor called Carol Tonkinson, and she was like, is there a book in this? And I was a bit like, fam, I'm not even 40. Like, I, can't write, I can't write a memoir. <laughs> and, also, and also, like, when you're doing, like, pockets of 800-word finding the grace in mundanity that is an easier thing than my parenthood life wasn't particularly special particularly awe-inspiring or like nothing out of the ordinary happened so I, I was a bit resistant to it when it was first suggested and so I went away and thought what would I do as a parenting book And the thing is, even with the intention that I set when I started it out, I I didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I didn't know that it was also going to be a book about grief as well. It's a book that's asking lots of big questions about the world. So, you know, the central thematic argument at the heart of the book is how do you find joy when the world is so fucked? And for me, that kind of manifests in lots of different ways and lots of different conversations. So, you know, there is the conversation around grief. How do I raise my child when I am so I feel so broken by the death of my mum how do I raise my child to be proud of the fact that she's brown in a world that is increasingly hating of that how do I as a dad 
become sensitive to the specificity of what it is to raise daughters without then sort of putting her on a pedestal which is what some dads do and conversations around climate change and also food because you know I have issues with food and I also love eating food and all the rest of it for me food is home and that's why I eat a lot of it so like it became a series of different conversations for me and the linear sort of strand that kind of linked all of those conversations together ended up being my grief for my mum, you know, and also trying to explain the world to my daughters in a way that made sense to both of us. But also, like, those conversations change all the time. But even those conversations I was having with my daughter when she was two about race and racism, they change now. Like, she's six years old, and the other day she asked me a question about the Bristol bus boycott. So we live in Bristol and, you know, at her school, they're talking about Colston because that's what school kids are talking about, obviously. And she wanted to know my perspective on them. So I started explaining what I knew about the Bristol bus boycotts and the fact that I met Paul Stevenson, which was amazing. And for people who don't know, this was like a big civil rights action in Bristol about racism and um, a boycott of the buses because black people weren't being given jobs working on buses. And it worked because of people like Paul Stevenson. And um, when I was talking to her about it, and she's six years old, and bear in mind, we've had conversations about race before, I realised I had to explain to her what racism was. And, um, you know, she started asking me questions about why we had a Black Lives Matter poster in our window. And when I was explaining racism to her, you know, I was saying some people hate other people because of the colour of their skin. She was like, I do not get this as a concept. I do not understand this. And I started doing that thing where I was like, oh, well, I started trying to empathise with a racist. I, I was like, maybe people feel like this. because, And then I had to stop myself and go, no, you're being intellectually dishonest with yourself and with your child. She is right. At its very core, it is a preposterous idea. It is a ridiculous idea. So, like, for you trying to justify a ridiculous idea does both you and her a disservice. So I had to basically stop myself and go, you know what? You're right. It is silly. It is a silly thing. I do not understand it. What's interesting is like even now, like a year and a half after finishing this book, like I'm still having different conversations about it because, you know, our kids are growing up all the time and they're seeing the world in different light all the time. And those different lights give them different perspectives because they're still pushing up against the world and trying to learn more about it. One of the sections in your book was about teaching your children about race. And there is a story in there about your daughter and her two dollies that I'd love for you to speak on a bit. So your daughter has these two dolls, Annabelle and Patty. How did they both come into your daughter's life and what happened? They both came from different parts of the family, but one of them was specifically bought for her by her grandmother who was looking for a mixed race doll which had non-white skin you know she ended up having to buy it from america because she couldn't find i mean i don't know how she googled i don't know how she approached that google search but she couldn't find one in the uk so she had one imported from america you know at home growing up she was never that into dolls so she'd have annabelle and she'd have patty the mixed race doll and she'd not really be interested in either of them and then one day i went to pick her up at nursery and she'd been really upset all afternoon the nursery person took me to one side and told me that she'd got really upset because she couldn't play with a certain doll. And, you know, she'd been given the option of the brown doll and she kept saying she didn't want to play with it because brown was dirty and she felt like brown was dirty and she didn't want to play with a dirty doll. Also, like, I had... Sorry, this is just reminding me. I just, I just did this panel with this food writer and the food writer was sort of just very casually went, yeah, the thing about brown food is so unphotogenic. And I was just like, 
this is how casually that that sort of association of brown being unphotogenic or dirty or poo coloured or all the rest of it just sort of proliferates in our lives and so I started making a point when we were at home of trying to get her to play with Patty the mixed race doll and she just wouldn't and the thing about Annabelle the white dolly was she was ignored but I'd find Patty shoved into all manner of places like she neither of them were ever played with but Annabelle was just like where she always was whereas Patty was hidden at all times and I just found that really weird the only way to try and understand it every time we had a conversation about it, because she was like two and she she was still sort of wrestling with why she did things and sort of being able to articulate why she was doing things. But the only thing that we could think of was that she had this association that Brown was dirty and therefore she didn't want anything to do with it. And I just found that so sad because as I constantly affirm with her, she is Brown, you know. There's a joke from um, W. Kamau Bell, the comedian, who talks about his mixed-race kids, and he's like, what is the one thing that a mixed-race kid will never be identified as? And it's white. For, for most of them, I mean, obviously some mixed-race kids are white-passing, and so that's a different conversation. I'm not specifically talking about that, but mixed-race kids with brown skin will never be racialised as white. They'll always be racialised as mixed-race or brown or black. And so for my kid to kind of have that association so early on, obviously I was talking like before about the good immigrant and touring that so having those two things happening in tandem was really really messed up because one of the essays in the collection the good immigrant collections by a guy called Darren Shetty and he used to be a primary school teacher and the essay's called you can't say that stories have to be about white people and it was about some teaching that he did with some primary school kids in Tower Hamlets which is obviously like overwhelmingly not white classes and how whenever he got them to write stories about themselves, kids would really feel uncomfortable writing stories where brown people were the main characters. And he was trying to understand that and understand where that came from. And and it's like a societal mirroring that's happening. Like, they don't see themselves reflected on the page or on the screen. And so that becomes how they view themselves in their lives. And so if you have those associations set for you by the stuff that you absorb both on screen and on the page so early on, then... We need to really think about that. I love that. I've had a little bit of experience of that when I write for children, when I go and do workshops. I'll go to a school where I've not got a single white kid in the class and I'll write them to put pen to paper and they think of a character's name and it'll be, oh, Alice, or and I'll be like, there's no one in this room with a name anything like Alice. And you're absolutely right. It's not maybe the security not believing that your story is validated or important or would never make it to be a main the main character of a story. They're not a hero or a heroine. But, you know, this is this is the thing. Like, you know, Marley Diaz talks about how there are more dogs called Timmy than black kids in children's books. And, you know, if you can have monsters called Rajesh and you can have superheroes who are diverse and if you can have you know people who do extraordinary things in children's books who are diverse but also people who do really mundane things that are diverse and that's super important but for me it's not just about me the brown parent as the parent absorbing those books they aren't just for me they are for everyone they are for everyone to teach their kids that anyone can be the main character of a story I often feel like we're in the imagination business, you and I, Laura. We're in the imagination business. And but we're in the imagination. I love that. But I work in imagination, okay, guys. Yeah. I work in imagination. I'm thinking right now, and that's called work. Charge charge seven pounds an hour. Um but the imagination business is is sort of fucked if we don't live in an imagination business where people can imagine a black James Bond or 
you know, they can suspend their disbelief enough for a world where ghosts need busting, but they can't imagine four women doing the busting of the ghosts. For me, that kind of says that these people need those diverse and inclusive books much earlier in their lives than I do, because I've spent my entire lifetime sort of projecting myself onto like the Peter Parkers of the world. Whereas I know that my daughter... I can just curate stuff for her. And, you know, there are amazing spaces around that will help me with that curation. I find this idea that parents don't see colour difficult because it ultimately means that parents just see everyone as white. You know, we have to push up against the defaultness of whiteness. In order for us to do that, parents need to see colour and they need to curate accordingly. Another thing I wanted to discuss with you that really resonated with me in the book was about consent and boundaries with children. You know, what happened with me, I, I was so ill, I was, you know, hospitalised and on, on, woke up on Mother's Day on my own without my baby and I was being sent photographs of Jet being passed around, you know, really perfectly well-intentioned people. But also I was in psychosis. My psychosis, part of it started, you know, believing that all these people were going to steal and um, take the custody of my child and I needed to get out to win him back sort of thing. So then seeing him, of course, in the practical, primal sense, and of course it takes a village to raise a baby. So there's a sense of community and family and it's great that somebody else, you know, can take the baby, but all your alarm system of your body is going, that is my child, that's my child. And get your fingers off, get your hands off them, that is my baby. You know, I sometimes do it, I'll be like, kiss so-and-so goodbye, give blah, blah, blah a cuddle, and sometimes Jet doesn't want to do that. And it's consent already at this age, asking permission. How do you feel about that from a father's perspective? Yeah, so basically, my kid was learning to walk and... There were some visitors, we didn't know them very well, but they were so desperate. They just wanted to sit with her, hugging her like she was a dolly. And I, I kind of had seen them with a male baby and like the male baby was just allowed to roam free. But there was just something about their insistence that she be hugged like a dolly and not have any say in the matter that I found really troublesome. And then it kind of escalated because she didn't want to be hugged by them and... So they did this sort of weird thing where they, they were sort of joking, but they were like, oh, you're so, you just want your mummy. You just you just want your mummy. Mummy, mummy, mummy. Maybe, maybe I'll just take you away from her and you'll come and live with me and you won't see her anymore. How would you like that? <laughs> and they thought they were being funny, but I was just like, wow, this is really fucked up. This is really like... I saw so clearly a man be rejected by a woman and lash out. It's difficult, especially in big families. Your kid is everyone's kid as well. And I guess it's slightly different for me than it is for the rest of my family who, you know, who are having kids because I don't live anywhere near them. So they want to have the relationship with my kids that they have with the kids who live in London still. But that thing of babies and agency is really important, I think, because you want them to ensure that no means no. Like, I love tickling my kids, but as soon as they say stop, I don't like it, I will stop. And then who is that fun for? And it makes them think then they have to adapt to tolerate that unpleasantness, as you say. Actually, no is such an important word to, to know. You need to have no in your vocabulary. You've got to be able to say, I shouldn't just be accepting this because this old uncle that I've never even met before wants me to sit on their knee for an hour. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of ensure that they aren't doing stuff because of fear of being called rude. 
You give this great analogy, like in a simple, compact visual for us to understand, which is the papoose dad. Oh, yeah, the papoose dad, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The papoose dad is the dad who, like, on weekends has their baby in a little papoose in front of them, (laughs) facing outwards, and they're holding their hands. And you're like, this is the one time you show up and you want everyone to know it. And everyone kind of gives you super points for it because you look like you're a really engaged dad. Uh, Like, we had this sort of weird thing recently where, like, at my kids' school, there's, like, a reward system for the stuff that they do. It's called dojos or something. And so, like, during lockdown, we instituted our own dojo system. But we were allowed to also be awarded dojos. But what we noticed was, like, on weekends and in evenings, I will do stuff around the house because I'm not not a dig. Um, But during the day, I'll be working. And... I would get the dojos for like all of that work, whereas like the stuff their mum was doing was just seen as ordinary. So it wasn't seen as very special. And we we tried to broach this with them. Like we're both doing the same stuff, but like why is the dad being rewarded and not the mum? And they couldn't really work out why that was, why they saw me doing the washing up was more special <laughs> than their mum. Yeah, really, totally. Yeah. And like, and it's like whenever I can come out and see my friends, they go, oh, that's so good, is Hugo babysitting? I'm like, no, 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 he's not babysitting. <laughs> he's the baby's dad. Yeah. Like, he's doing his job. Yeah. Like, but whereas if, if it's the other way around, it's not even a question. It's Laura's got jet, you know. I didn't write about this in the book, but I really remember this happening. So because I am brown, I get stopped at airports quite a lot. So this was a couple of years ago. We went, we went away. And so my wife had the baby with her and I had the three-year-old. And I was walking the three-year-old through the machine and it beeped because it always does with me. Like maybe I've got a metal hip I don't know about or maybe my beard's just an inch too long. And so they pulled us aside for, for a search. Just this sort of bizarre scene occurred where they kept saying where's the baby's mother she she where's her mother she should be with her mother and she's like they've they've gone on you've held us back and they were like but she should be traveling with her mother and I'm like why I'm her dad <laughs> like what's wrong with you and they were like well we need to search you and I was like okay cool uh fine and they were like we need to search her as well and I was like why she's three and they were like well you know we need to that's just protocol and I was like okay I think that's really messed up I, I don't I don't want you to do that and they were like look we have to. And I was like, okay, cool. So can I just explain to her what's going to happen? Because I think that she should know why a stranger is going to be touching her. And they were like, you're being very difficult, sir. And so while one person was like telling me I was being really difficult, another person frisked her. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, don't touch my child without permission. She doesn't know what's going on. She's just sitting there like a little three-year-old going like, I have no idea what's going on. And now like, People are calling my dad aggressive and stuff. I tweeted about it and then like the tweets went viral. So I was like, actually, I should complain about this rather than like just like fling it out on social media. I decided to write a letter to the airport company. You know, they kind of had all this sort of justifications for why they did what they had to do, but they wouldn't kind of own up to the thing that had frisked my child without my permission. And then they said, but we reviewed the security footage and you're smiling throughout the whole exchange you don't seem distressed and I was like that is so fucked up like of course I was distressed but I'm worried about my kid I don't want her to think that anything's wrong but also I know that 
if I'm seen as like the angry ethnic, I might not be able to board that plane and go on that holiday and all that kind of stuff. It's like, what do you want me to be doing? On my knees, crying my eyes out. It's that stoic moment when a parent, something terrible is happening to them and they manage to say to the child, it's okay, don't worry, everything's okay. That's strength in its own right. Yeah. So I would love to talk to you about that relationship you explore between food and grief. I remember having a chat with you around the time your mum died and I really felt your sorrow. But I knew food was all to do with it. But I really just admired that honesty that you wrote about the food. And you're going on this journey where you're kind of, you know you're self-medicating, but you're so desperate to revive somebody, to reach them at this access point. The podcast is called Zombie Mum, and I've not seen anyone write of a zombie dad as fantastically as you do. I wonder if you could just expand on that a bit. Over the years, I've written a lot about my grief for my mum and how that kind of manifested in me trying to learn how to cook like her and like the alchemy of smelling food that or tasting food that takes you back to a specific time in your life. And these sort of complex ideas of home that we have, like moving from one city to another while grieving for someone and wanting a home that I was trying to make feel like my home in some way. But I think the thing that I discovered was that it wasn't it wasn't that the food needed to taste exactly like it used to be because that is an abstraction in a way. My mum just wanted me to care about this food and for it to be part of what she passed on to me and for it to be part of my heritage. And there could have been a version of this where she'd physically taught me when I, when she wanted me to be interested in it and instead it became a journey of grief. You know, food is so food can be such an act of communion and such an act of community and such an act of love. My mum just wanted me, she just wanted me to kind of care about it when she cared about it. And sure, I can make a great dal now and like all of those dishes and stuff. But I just, I guess I just have this sort of regret that I didn't care about it when she was alive. I've kind of asked you the main questions I wanted to ask you apart from the kind of sleep deprivation bits, which we haven't tapped into, there's a scene where you meet your past life in a way. I don't know if you would call it that, but where you see these like young drunk people out on the street having a really good time and you're the zombie dad, ultimate zombie dad, you know, half dead, trying to get your little girl to sleep in that way that nobody understands. And I'm so glad you tapped into that because... Something happens to you when you have a baby and it's not just the sleep deprivation. In fact, that's just like an extra level of the task. But suddenly you sense danger like you've never sensed danger before. When I was papoose dad, when I was just walking, my youngest child would just sleep on me and I'd just walk her around. And you know, I was the fittest I've ever been because I would just walk for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and my, yeah. little, my little project to myself was to work through every single Wu-Tang album, solo and group album. And where I live in Bristol we live near lots of like bars and clubs and stuff and I just walked past a club and it was summer and it was like five in the morning and people leaving leaving a club in daylight which was like you know we've both had those nights where you walk out of a club absolutely and like, shit it's daylight how long was I in there oh my god but you know what Nikesh they chose that that's what they chose to stay up all night yeah. And that's the difference. It was such a like electric moment to kind of look at these kids and just feel 
so separate from them, but also just like be swept away by their youthfulness. And also like I describe a time in the book where like I go out with two of my friends who haven't had kids yet. Irony is since then they've both had kids, both turned into to me. But like they really thought that me talking about kids was as boring as I found them talking about football. And so we tried to have this night out. Like I was in London for a thing and I just decided I, I'd sort of asked my partner if it was OK, I, if I just stayed on for a couple of hours to have a pint with them. And then I'd come home and she was like, yeah, fine. But that was the night we were trying controlled crying and... I just ended up leaving the pub and coming home much earlier than expected because I just realised that that's not where I needed to be at that time. That's the trap, isn't it, of being a parent because there's no way there is a safe place for you. You're at home and you're not in a safe place. You're with your friends and you feel like you need to be at home and you are completely pulled apart in every direction. And one thing I was really, like, amazed of with you is that you don't seem to kind of... You're sleep-deprived, but you kind of don't seem to... You really go with it. You just go if I eat loads and drink loads of coffee I'll get through it whereas for me it sent me into a total I mean I know I was unwell but many parents feel that they have no choice they're being literally dragged through hell I thought you lent into it quite well well yeah I mean I did have the I don't know if it's a privilege but you know I'm the male in the situation so it's a lot easier for me and uh, you know I had a full-time job when both of my kids were were young and my first kid, I had just had this realisation that, like, I get to have a shower in the morning and I have an hour to myself at lunch to have a lunch break. I can eat wherever I want. I could go to a fucking food truck on the other end of town on my bike if I want to. If it's Friday and people are like, let's finish at four and have a pint, I can still leave at five like I always do, but I can have had an hour. And so like, and they're small things, but but at that time when you're so sleep deprived, they're massive things. And so realising that I had that space, if I wanted that space, just made me go, it's never going to be as bad for me as the person who's stuck at home. And like, can't leave the house because of various, various things going on and, you know, isn't having the best time and, you know, can't even have a shower or a poop by themselves you know yeah so amazing listening to you I just feel like that that real empathy is what is that is what is needed and I'm so happy you've got two little girls as well because I think you're this book they're gonna be really proud of you with that Nikesh thank you so much for giving us your time today no thank you you're amazing you're amazing if you have been affected by any of the themes in this program head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan, with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Rob Fincham. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. Next week, for the final episode of Zombie Mum Series 1, I'm chatting to Bryony Gordon. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. I remember when I turned up in rehab sort of three and a half years ago I remember thinking I was the worst woman in the world I remember thinking I was the only mother in the world who behaved like this who would drink to blackout who would occasionally end up on cocaine benders and go AWOL and and I walked into rehab and the first person I met was another mother (laughs) my age who had kids the same age and I was like oh my god you were there all along 